You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge <laughs> Movie Podcast. Today, we are going to talk about the 1988 film Miracle Mile. It is the 119th episode of this podcast, and we watched this on Apple TV, but it is also available on Amazon Prime for $3.99, or if you're willing to sit through ads, you can watch it on Pluto TV. It's written and directed by Steve Jarnett. He also wrote Strange Brew, and he directed Cherry 2000 with Melanie Griffith, who we talked about last week. It stars Anthony Edwards, Mayor Winningham, John Agar, Lou Hancock, Kurt Fuller, and Denise Crosby. The DP was Leo Van DeSande, and he did Volcano in 97 and Blade in 98. The synopsis for this film is a young man hears a chance phone call can, and telling him that a nuclear war has started and missiles will hit his city in 70 minutes. So the tagline is very succinct with that. It says, you just found out you have 24 hours to live. What are you going to do? All right. I think that effectively captures the spirit of the film. Mm -hmm. So welcome back, Dustin and Lisa. Hi. Thanks for having us. (laughs) And uh, let's see. Oh, it took Steve eight years to get this movie made is my little bit of trivia. Mike, I'm going to have you kick us off with your pickup line. And then Dustin, I'm going to have you talk about this film. I never really saw the big picture before. Not till today. Mm, that's that, uh, that works pretty well with my theory. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you know Mike's theory that the, pic- no. the first line of the movie tells you what I should. Kind of establishes the narrative question for, for the like, film. For the film. Wow. Gotcha. It doesn't yeah, always, do it's not line. always true, but it is sometimes. Yeah. yeah. I could well, see as that. a screenwriter, you really want your first line mm-hmm. to be good for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. So we kind of test that. And I would say we're at 95%. I, I, I think it, it's most likely, um, well, it's true. And like you said, mm-hmm. I think from a storytelling perspective, you want to jump into the action as late as possible. So mm-hmm. that makes sense. The first line was something that actually means something. Mm-hmm. Um, not always true, but uh, generally. So. Mm-hmm. Nice. So what, why are you drawn to this film? Well, let's start. I mean, this is part of the yuppie nightmare cycle that we've been talking about all month for reasons that will become apparent as soon as you see it or hear the premise even, which is one of the great premises of all time. You said that it took Steve many years to make this movie. And I think that, I mean, I should know better uh, for obvious. Yeah. <laughs> Lisa and I know Steve. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, we've met him. Yeah, he's a friend. Oh, cool. And so uh, I, we've talked to him about this movie and I think he was offered uh, muchos dineros to sell the script because he was mm-hmm. kind of an untested young filmmaker mm-hmm. and really wanted to make it. And so it wouldn't sell it unless he could direct it. And thank mm-hmm. God he did because it, it's it's a brilliant screenplay, and Steve is just an amazing writer. That's kind of what he's done since he sort of left film making films mm-hmm. full time. He's become a, a fiction writer. He's a very good fiction writer. But beyond how good the screenplay is, you know, this movie is much like Into the Night, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. This movie is just a masterpiece of like tone and style yeah. and mood, and it has its own dream logic that's oh, yeah. there not only in the screenplay and the story, but in 
the music by Tangerine Dream mm-hmm. and the cinematography and the sets mm-hmm. and how he uses all those things and the parade of amazing character oh, actors gosh, that yeah. he f- gets to fill out his cast. This movie is like the king of, it's one of those movies where you'll recognize every face that you come across. You won't know their names, yeah. but you'll be like, oh, I know that guy. That mm-hmm. guy's been in a thousand mm-hmm. movies. And it's just, a, it's, the, it's a whole parade of those kinds of actors. But yep. Starting with the premise, which is one of the great premises ever, it's basically what would happen if you answered a phone, a payphone, and on the other end of the phone was a guy saying, missiles have been launched, we, we fired our missiles at Russia, we're going to get it back in 90 minutes, oh my God, what am I going to do? And then the phone, And then the phone disconnects. Do you think it's a prank call because it's a public payphone and it's just some random call? Do you think it's a real call that the guy actually had the wrong number Mm -hmm. and that you've just heard a real warning about the imminent end of the world? And are you willing, if you do think it's a prank call, are you willing to take the chance that that's what it is? Or are you going to use those 90 minutes to try to do something important to get out of the city, to save your life, to save the life of the girl you've fallen in love with? which is another key question of the movie because the movie is really a love story at the yeah. end of the day. It, it's a love story masquerading as an end-of-the-world thriller. So there's all kinds of things we could talk about with this one. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very 80s, end-of-the-80s movie. It's a very Cold War-reflected movie. It's hard to Im- imagine now, or maybe not so much anymore because right. we're, mm-hmm. we're, re- we're kind of entering a new era of a Cold War thanks to our conflict with Russia and China. But it, this was an era where... Those of us that kind of grew up in the 80s will remember like (laughs) nuclear war, like hide under your desk, you know, Mm -hmm. and sort of like fear around fear around getting bombed. There were there were TV movies like the day after that was about like the aftermath of a nuclear explosion. All the action movies of that era were about chasing villains that were going to like detonate nuclear weapons. And it was just a real it was a real fear in the air, and this movie was sort of a great scenario kind of climax for that at the end of the the 1980s. But again, it's like it's a MacGuffin to get the story moving, and you know, to raise this question of what do you do with the last 90 minutes of your life? Yeah, um, you spoke of the day after, and I just looked it up. It came out in '83, so yeah. I was 12 years old. That movie terrified me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have vivid memories of that movie and just feeling hopeless yeah and if i were to receive the news reports that he doesn't like me to say this i was like i would just run out the door i wouldn't (laughs) even try i did not want to be joe beth williams in the basement dying of cancer i was just like let's end it quick if that's what we're looking at i mean i'm sorry to get so morbid but that movie affected me hugely and, and so, yet you like a quiet place, which is I a film appreciate- all about a person. No, that's who different. is doomed. Who's who's hanging on by? No, a- not if they could stay away from the monsters. But I appreciate the filmmakers that told a story right. where you couldn't make noise. Right, mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. not to. Mm-hmm. But when he, because I listened to um, a YouTube, I, I'm so excited that you guys know him because. <laughs> I mean, he's a man after my own heart. I felt like I got a little bit of a prepper vibe from him. (laughs) Like, he still seems like someone who's still very afraid of this happening. I mean, he lives in a small town up in Washington and, and, 
he seemed like he's kind of trying to hide out, which <laughs> Steve Desjardins, you mean? Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. It is, did you not? No, I mean, I think, I think, I think Steve's from the Northwest originally. Oh, okay. So um, he didn't go yeah, hide. He already no, lived no, no, there. no, no. I mean, okay, he good. lives in a beautiful uh, part of Puget Sound, mm-hmm. and I think he also has a place in LA, or he goes back to LA a lot because oh, okay. he still he still works. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about the whole sort of like nu- the nuclear bomb element of it, and 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 I don't know how much of that is key to his thoughts around making this movie so much as wanting to position a a, a love story within this kind of great framework, this real time framework of suspense and tension. And, oh, okay. Well, he said that he was highly influenced by the the drills and mm-hmm. everything. And so mm-hmm. I guess I misread. It seemed like he was someone who was living with a lot of fear. And, and yeah, I'm sure he of, was just as just by being by nature of being a guy in his 20s in the 80s. Right. Like being an adult. Yeah. And we were being all a young be adult in the yeah. 80s. Yeah, yeah for yeah, sure. She, but I, I didn't really get that. That was not a clear and pressing danger for me in your life or in this film. No, in general, growing up in that era. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, everybody talked about it, but oh my gosh. <laughs> that, that was, uh, for me, there were far more dangerous things locally that I could worry about. Mm-hmm. I never got mm-hmm. that. I didn't go see the day after. I had no interest in that in that film. It just didn't, like, it I wasn't part like of it. I feel like it was on TV. It was. It was, it was a TV movie. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't know how scared I was either during that era, because as a kid, you just, you do have other, I mean, I was, you know, yeah. you, have, you have bullies to fight. Right. <laughs> yeah. School, yeah. You know, yeah. You know the right. clear, they're not, a, it's not a clear and present danger. Gorbachev. The guy with one is, eyebrow is, is yeah. going to beat you up for your lunch money. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. More, more, more so that it just created the cold war created yeah. a, an, an, oh, an ever present era mm-hmm. of kind of doom and gloom over mm-hmm. national politics. Part of the and, background, part of the wallpaper. Yeah. Certain yeah. angst, I guess. Maybe. Yeah. It's a paranoid movie, right? Yeah. Miracle yeah. Mile is an extremely paranoid movie. Like, you know, he's constantly changing his story. He tells mm-hmm. the one person yep. it's yes, a I it's a plant that. meltdown. Yeah. Then he tells somebody it's like a chemical that got into the wind. Yeah. And like, you know, it's he's there's plenty of reasons that he can give as to why the world might be ending. And everybody he talks to immediately believes it. But does it matter, though, what the reason is? This is kind of what you're getting at. He tells everybody a different reason. And to get back to Lisa's dream uh, thing, <laughs> yeah. is that it, it very much felt like that, right? Because he, yeah. he woke up late somehow, yeah. and then that, oh, that's dream logic, right? Yeah. Is I, I'm, I, I have this, oh my gosh, I got to get there. And it doesn't always be the same thing. It can morph it over the dream of right. why you're running to get someplace. So that kind of made some yeah. dream sense. Well, and much like in Into the Night, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, there's an opportunity in this movie to think, has he woken up, right? Because he goes to sleep to, you know, refresh himself for their date later that night, um, misses his alarm for various reasons, and is he awake? Right. We can't really be sure. Yeah. For folks that haven't seen it, we should yeah. we keep talking about the love story. Sorry, the, yes, we should yes, mention yes. that the the reason he doesn't just flee the city yep. is that he wants to go and the, he meets a woman earlier that day mm-hmm. who he falls in love with. Really played adorable, by Mara. meet cute, actually. Yeah, yeah, Mara Winningham. Yeah. yeah, the whole like first fifteen minutes of the movie is a romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, it feels very lovely and, and sun drenched yes, to me. Yep. I love mm-hmm. the beginning. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and he's he decides that he's not going to leave the city without 
who yeah. he thinks is the love of his mm-hmm. life. So he yep. has to go and find Mayor Winningham and then get out. And the movie unfolds in real time. So mm-hmm. he really like only has an hour and 10 minutes yeah, to pull this so off. Tense. And the longer he waits and the longer the movie unfolds, of course, the more people have heard about it because the story has started to spread. Mm-hmm. And so the more panic starts to arise around him, which impedes his progress in getting out of the city to the point where at the end of the movie, it's mayhem in the streets yeah. and you can barely move. I, we were talking, we're talking about this paranoia and the building of it over the movie. And this time watching it, I've seen it a few times this time watching it, it actually did feel more relevant today to me. Yes. I was I was really feeling it this time in a way I hadn't ever before, partially just because of the way things are right now and the way things become viral and people feel maybe a little more paranoid or, or panicked. Watching that um, that crowd scene where yeah. Anthony Edwards gets up on the car and yeah. oh, I just it, it hit me a little bit more because of the way things are now. I, I think, think this, than it has in the past. Yeah, I it think felt it more did relevant. too for me because yeah. we saw like you know I mean not to bring up but like the whole toilet paper thing like it didn't make sense right. but <laughs> yeah. i found myself trying to like well maybe we need toilet paper yeah maybe i know me just too get caught yeah. up in it yeah and, and i kept going like but why like this is a it felt really relevant re- re- yeah. re- respiratory thing not a right why do we need toilet paper mentality to get back to <laughs> totally. what dustin was saying earlier though i think that there at that time there was a lot of post-apocalyptic stories mm-hmm. fiction and mm-hmm. movies uh, probably because people thought that nuclear war was coming, but that was, there was a big surge. And I feel like that's come pa- back. Yeah. Is mm-hmm. I, I would expect that 90% oh. of student films are post-apocalyptic. <laughs> I think that's, um, I mean, they were mm-hmm. five years ago when I was in film school. Right. Yeah, for sure. Every little read that we would do yeah. in a post-apocalyptic world. Right. And so this film, <laughs> at least the back half reminded me a lot of some of those other 80s yeah. films I want to say Night of the Comet was oh, one yeah, of them. Oh, yeah, big time. Um, Such a love great Love Night of the Comet. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it's like, uh, again, L.A., yeah. things have collapsed. Mm-hmm. The grid is gone or what have you. Yeah. And we all have to. And then there was another one that involved, I think, rollerblading but the, or wow. roller skating. That wasn't quite as good a film. But <laughs> <laughs> there were a, a lot of that, like, into the world stuff. And I know people who yeah. really got into that, not so much as a prepper themselves, but that fiction, and that's probably that mindset of, yeah, if civilization collapses. But some of that, though, is a little bit crazy because I don't know if you could get a helicopter today if you wanted one in in 30 minutes. Yeah. So some of that was maybe dreamlike. Sure. That I, um, and, and, of course, I don't know if bodybuilders are traditionally helicopter pilots. <laughs> Again, things yeah. that are more dreamlike in that setting. But I think that spoke to people's, like the reaction to that, yeah. what would you do? Well, I think the answer is most people lose their mind. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, we saw that. I yeah. thought another interesting thing about that paranoia and watching it unfold is like, you start to think about has Anthony Edwards caused this, right? And there's, yes, a moment, I thought that too. there's a moment in the movie where he questions himself on that. Right. And it's a really interesting, like, did I make this happen? Ooh, like, well, that's the zero. beautiful question that yeah. hangs over the whole 100%. film, which is what if he's wrong? Right. Because yeah. if he's yeah. wrong and it really was a prank call, then he has he's responsible for a lot of death. Yeah, right. I mean, are, you could argue the person that made the prank call is, but he's also responsible for a lot of death and destruction yeah. that has happened yeah. if this bomb never comes. I just found myself really reacting to that so much this time watching it, and I've watched it at least a time. Yeah. So and yeah. he grapples with that. You're right in the third act. Yeah. It's a really Anthony Edwards is one of those actors that's not 
talked about a lot, even though he's been in a lot of big stuff like mm-hmm. ER and mm-hmm. Top Gun. Top Gun yeah. um, but he was really good in this era oh, at yeah. playing these kind of naive mm-hmm. stand up guys, but like really like Bambi, right? Like, yeah. like they call him Bambi and Gotcha, you know, oh, yeah, which is that. a comedy he <laughs> made. So but, good. you know, he, he was really good at playing these kind of like straightforward like good guys that were but the who were really gullible revenge of the nerds yeah revenge of the nerds that's a great example of yeah and he was really great it's a really good casting like i think i'm trying to remember i should know better because i've read whole books about this movie but i think like nicholson was maybe considered for this part and there were like some big names yeah there were that were attached and actors that like would really not have been as good because like Jack Nicholson in this part would have, Can you it would have stripped a lot yeah. of the suspense out of it because you, it's hard to believe that Nicholson would not be in control. Right. right? Like, yeah. right. but like Anthony Edwards really feels like he's in over his head yeah. from the very beginning. Yeah. yeah right. He's really good in this. Movie. I love him yeah. in this movie, him and Mary Winningham. I think they're just lovely. Yeah. They're really good. Poor Mary Winningham has maybe the worst haircut yeah. in yeah. movie history. Oh, in really this. And I know Steve, Steve's aware of that. <laughs> and because, <laughs> I will mention we're talking about, Denise Crosby. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. She was in Star Trek The Next Generation. Yep. In which Jonathan Frakes, who's now a director, yep. he famously played a trombone. His character did, oh, but yes, Frakes he does did. himself. <laughs> yeah. Anthony Edwards does not play the trombone. In real life. You can you tell. Mean. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. When he is supposedly, and this drives me nuts with filmmakers. <laughs> and so I, I also brought up a lovely woman, Blake Lively, and sister <laughs> of the traveling pants. <laughs> she plays an award-winning so soccer player, and she runs she around on screen soccer. and has obviously never run before her in her entire <laughs> life, which is fine, but then don't show us. Right. It just, it, it took me out of the film when he was supposedly a professional musician, and I'm just, whoa. Like, he that doesn't even doesn't match play. the music. This is nuts. So That's a budget thing, isn't it? Right, yeah. Like, if you're, if you can afford to, like, send your actor away for six to months to learn whatever it is. But, yeah. oh. Miracle Mile's made for, like, five cents, right? They couldn't get no. trombone lessons. Trombone that was not in tutorials. the budget. No. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe shoot it a little different, but uh, that's not a criticism of Edwards. It's just it's something I noticed. Is like, something that oh, takes you not, out of it. Yeah. yeah, and that's again yeah. one of the things it's, that bumps me. It's great casting because yeah. he wasn't like your leading man, like or you an know, action like Tom hero. Bruce. Tom Cruise, he was the yeah. friend, yeah. right? Or like an action hero. Right? Oh, right. But, yeah. He, but he kind of is besides every man. I actually made a note: not a fan of Julie's hair. <laughs> Poor yeah. Julie. I think it's something that in every Q and A he's ever done about yeah. this movie that Steve oh, has really? to laugh over because you know it was the '80s. It's a mullet. It was. Right. It was. I mean, I don't know how often you saw that cut on women, but it must not have come out of nowhere. Yeah. So right. well, it's it's an unfortunate cut for Miss Winningham, who is a phenomenal actress. Yeah, but yes. to her credit, I think she's still very likable, and you oh, can absolutely. see like yeah. very appealing, very attractive. You can see. Where it's coming from, right? Even with the yeah, haircut, the chemistry like, is there. Yeah, it certainly definitely works. Uh-huh. I kind of, I know, this is kind of going back a little bit, but that opening scene mm-hmm. in the diner where we're kind of meeting all the characters and, like oh, you yeah. said, the waitress, she's like, <laughs> I know I've seen that lady before, mm-hmm. uh-huh. and she's so iconic. 
and we're meeting all of the people in like the were they sanitation workers mm-hmm. or and and then Denise comes in, her character comes in, and so we're just trying to kind of find who are these people. And it seems like everybody is just so nonchalant when he tells them. They're not worked up. And I guess you wouldn't be. Well, think about, you just answered your own question, which is that think about who would be in a (laughs) diner in Los Angeles in the middle of the night right it's a it's a it's all it's this collection of oddballs right it's the sioux sanitation workers it's the strange businesswoman who's reading like cliff notes of thomas pension thomas pension yeah Yeah, it's the it's the woman dressed like a flight attendant who we later find out is not a flight attendant she's an actress (laughs) yeah it's just all these like peculiar people who are the last people perhaps that you would want to be the only people with the knowledge of the impending apocalypse. Right. Like that's, there's a great moment where, so they're all fleeing in that truck, yeah, right? Yeah. And there's a great moment where one of the sanitation workers and I think it's the waitress, maybe they're sitting together oh, and they're yeah. like, we have to think of the people we need to save. Like Who are the great the grinds of the world? And right. it's like, these are probably not the two people we want to come up with the list Making of the great minds of the world. That is very funny. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That was, so it's just, it's it's just there's such a great group mm-hmm. of characters played by just an amazing group of character the definition actors. of ragtag yeah. perhaps no. there's um, a clip on youtube that i will put in the show notes and they reunited in the diner yeah. a few All years the actors, ago yeah. yeah yeah and it's great okay. them talking about it and steve came down and he's wearing his seahawks you know <laughs> yeah, seahawks, yeah. 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 Well, great. i'm wondering though if when it came out at the time did that play more normally because in the 80s if somebody said oh there's a nuclear apocalypse in 90 minutes and people did have a go back and they did have a plan (laughs) but like (laughs) because i thought of the cook at the diner he was very nonchalant like okay here's what we got to do okay you get that show quickly like jumped up on the the counter and he was like all right but he (laughs) there was no time that he took to plan anything he had a plan already (laughs) Like, it was like, okay, we're going to have to get tomato cans over here and beans over there. So in that era where people just like, oh, that would be normal. Mm. If we were all going to get nuked by the Ruskies, then we knew exactly what to go do. Or at least some people would have that. Maybe not everyone. (laughs) But I did notice it it broadcast somehow throughout the city. Right? In theory, he just told the people in the diner, but then... Their friend told their friend, who told mm-hmm. two friends, who told yeah, two friends. Yeah, you can understand right. how it would creep out slowly yeah. Yeah. and how everybody might know by by yeah. morning. Maybe not to the degree that it happens in the movie, but you can you can understand how even Anthony Edwards is responsible for telling a good number of people yeah. who probably tell right. yeah. a bunch of people. Yeah, but I was going to say, it's, that's the great thing about the Denise Crosby character is one of my favorite characters in this movie, because without her... There's no helicopter. Right. There's yeah. no like plan to flee to the desert. To She's, save the but, great But mind. you never exactly find out like who she is or what, or what she, she does. does. All we yeah. know is like she's got that early She's got brick size. She's like the one that's giving that, it a little bit of credibility too, right? Like she's the person who makes yes. them feel like maybe this could be true. true. Yeah, she calls somebody and yeah. says, "Are we at DefCon three or yeah, whatever? Yeah, like, have we gone to forced readiness?" I think she asks. Yeah, something, yeah, like, that. something like that. So yeah, she's the one who. Kind of makes them all yeah. freak out a little. But that to me supports the theory that he's asleep because mm-hmm. that seems very like a dream sequence that there would be in this diner a woman with 
with a phone to the White House. <laughs> yeah. Like she could just call, right, dial, right. Yeah. you know, the equivalent of 911 and, yeah. and get yeah. Reagan on the phone. So that, that was, uh, uh, but maybe it was the shoulder pads were magic. <laughs> Might have been. The, the she did have an '80s lady power. She, yeah, didn't she, yeah. she had that Denise yeah. Crosby '80s haircut. She, she looked sure. great. Yeah. yeah, that scene is so interesting. Maybe a little off topic, but it feels like its own set piece. Um, it could almost be. Its, it's own. like a mini movie. It's like a mini a movie. movie. Yeah, that, it's wonderful. That whole thing in the yeah. diner. Yeah, yeah, it really, it's great. That almost feels like it could be a play, really. Exactly. Right? Yeah. That's exactly. One set it does feel that way. A half dozen crazy characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is the world going to end in 90 minutes? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You could write some great dialogue. I have that the Wilshire Boulevard was closed for two days for the filming of the climax, and he had to shoot additional pieces um, at his own expense after principal photography had wrapped for the movie. That's wow. commitment to your film. Yeah. That is commitment. It is a, we were thinking about this the last time we watched it. It's a movie that gets a lot of bang for its buck because yes. it's a very low budget movie and it really does not look like it. Like yeah. that no. whole set piece at no. the end with the Looks with amazing. the world the crumbling down where he ends up in the sewer even. To, oh, yeah. I mean, and That's there's right. that shot of him like climbing through the tunnel I'd forgotten about that. and he looks yeah. up at the grate and a dead guy falls yeah. on the grate. Mm-hmm. Like it's a it looks like a it looks like a $50 million movie. And yeah. it's, it was made for just a fraction mm-hmm. of that. And there's a couple mm-hmm. of like. Uh, can we talk about that scene at the gas station with the fire yeah. and the, that, that's a really, yeah, I mean, that's, that's not cheap. That didn't no. seem cheap to me and it is very effective. And then also um, when they crash, when they're in the um, mall or, uh, you know, they're in some kind mm-hmm. of clothing store mm-hmm. or mall and the car crashes through the window. Both of those, I think are really effective, possibly expensive scenes. I don't yeah. know. Or if they were done cheaply, they were done very well. Um, yeah. It's, it's similar to, into the night, which we were talking yeah. about a couple of weeks ago, it's a great portrait of nocturnal LA, and yeah. it's also there were a lot of empty streets, mm-hmm. which I think the low budget kind of like it. That's where nocturnal LA kind of did it a favor. Uh, yeah, that kind of like emptiness right. that like downtown LA has at night because there's not a lot of people living down there. Yeah. It's mostly right. office buildings, and and so it right. makes that when that's it's so weird when he stumbles on that that over all night gym, gym where he right. finds the helicopter pilot <laughs> yeah. and, and that gym is just like the most 80s thing i've ever seen it's oh. neon yeah the colors and, that's yeah. another oh. incident of feeling like a dream where you just like stumble into this weird place that's colorful right. and weird and everybody's weird and and there's like naked people naked yeah. people yeah. Yeah. <laughs> again yeah. uh, tip of the cap to the director i suppose uh, but uh, you know how do you work you said that that you thought <laughs> off mic we were talking about this you felt that that made sense. To me, the naked lady coming out of the tanning salon was simply there to put a naked lady on nope, television. Nope, you couldn't be more wrong. Here's why. <laughs> First of all, nothing, you know, if she's listening, no offense, but you would not have picked that naked lady if that was the reason that you okay, were, all right, you were I see what you're, doing it. You're, you know, that was like a, I think that was like a late middle-aged. Oh, okay. It just wouldn't have been Hollywood's selection, I think. Of, okay. Of, I think it's, and I don't know, I'd have to ask Steve about this. <laughs> he'd, he'd roll his eyes and, and be like, whatever. But I think it's there because it is so surprising. Like, it's like, in the same way that, like, Apatow and, and, and McKay and Will Ferrell use, like, nude men as shock humor. Okay. Right? right? Like, all those movies have, like, one 
Jason Segel at the beginning then, of yes, Forgetting exactly. Sarah Marshall. Or Walk uh-huh. Hard has like a couple uh-huh. of, yeah. you know, there's some, there's some like shocking nudity in right, those right. movies. Something about Mary. No, and okay. it's just, you're like, where am I? What is this? It's an all night neon drenched gym. <laughs> like and what? all yeah. of a sudden there's like a fully nude person in Maybe your face. Maybe it's just to keep you off balance. Kind I of? think that's yeah. why it's there. Yeah. I mean, the, I... I've seen it so many times now yeah. that I'm ready for it. <laughs> yeah. But I think if you were seeing it for the first time, you would be like, whoa, what? Why yeah. am I? Whoa, there's an all nude person here. What? And then and then the movie just races by it. It doesn't comment yeah. on yeah. it. And so it just becomes part of like the, the set dressing of that weird space right. and mm-hmm. the and the nightmare that is his night. Right. Like it's mm-hmm. a. That whole place is a that whole gym is kind of like a nightmarish. It's, it's so like the gym weird. from hell. It's a really yeah. weird, scary. And everybody in it is space. a little bit unfriendly, just a little bit. Um, I mean, and they're odd looking, they right? Like yeah, Brian Thompson, who plays the helicopter Such a striking pilot. Guy. The, yeah. You know, they, that's a he's a Seattle actor. He played most famous probably as the villain for, in Cobra, St- uh, Stallone's Cobra. <laughs> Although he was also he also played a big role in the X Files, which is what I knew him from. He's a very if you guys, you guys should go look him up. Yeah. He's one of the punks at the beginning of the, of the Terminator, yes, too, that the, the Terminator, Terminator shows oh, up yeah. and steals the clothing. He's a great, great character face. actor, but he has yeah. this incredibly interesting face. Yes. Yeah, that's, yeah. That he's just innately frightening. That's why he makes a great yeah. serial killer, yeah. <laughs> frankly. And it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's just part of that, that movie's descent into madness and Mm -hmm. and hell which we can Mm -hmm. call a dream logic but you can also just call like the surreal right Mm -hmm. okay so i'm gonna propose that perhaps for those of us who've only seen the film once (laughs) our reaction to the naked lady was a little bit different because (laughs) as i mentioned earlier to me it just landed like 80s gratuitous nudity because I, i i don't have quite the same backstory on this film that you do but i see where you're going it it does like you mentioned those other films, there is a certain amount of, of jarring surrealness to, to, I mean, imagine if you were walking through even a gym and door opens and a fully nude person comes out, you, it would be startling, right? I, I can see that. <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad that we're talking about this so much, but don't you think it, don't you think if that was the case, it's that it would have to be titillating nudity and there's nothing titillating about that or arousing well, about that nudity. So well, why would you put it in there as like token 80s nudity and, unless you were trying to turn somebody on? Well, and to me, as I mentioned before, to me it seemed like in the 80s it wasn't necessarily for that. It was just to have. It was a checkbox. Mm-hmm. We have our gratuitous nudity. It didn't always make sense, at least to me. Maybe huh. I'm not, not really vibing with the the intent of the filmmaker, but... I the more we talk about this, the more I think Lisa's right. This was all a dream sequence. <laughs> then it makes total sense. Oh man, well, I've turned into this all Just dream thinking person. as you guys were talking boobs. Um, <laughs> I feel like this New is segment on the, show. the only right. film of the four that we've talked about where I felt that he you know how the other three, I was like, just go home. Like just leave. Like they right. had agency. Like they could leave the situation. He can't leave the situation because once we get so far, he kind of has to keep going. He mm-hmm. can't turn back. And he could and, leave the girl, though. That's always the choice he has that he I could leave Mara Winningham. Right. Well, right. Of course. That's why it's yeah, such, a, that's that's why it. it's such a beautiful yeah. love story. But, and that's yeah. why. 
poquito. The, the last few. I, I think this movie is really deeply moving in the last yes. ten minutes. Uh, like yes. this, the last uh, few scenes yeah. between him and Mayor Winningham are absolutely <laughs> beautiful love story. You know, sequences. <laughs> it's scary like, and it's upsetting. Like we have lost our minds. Yeah, yeah, that is exactly though. what I am feeling. Like again, the dream theory makes more sense to me than that. But he did leave her several times. But it was always with the intent of going back to get her, though. It was like, I'm going to go do this, and then I'm going to come back for you. Right. So oh, yeah, in the middle of a riot, her. you would just say, you stay here. Yeah, see, I'm going to go over here and then come Mike back. Mike is very much, you never split the party. Like, even never at the grocery split the party. store. Okay. I'm like, you go okay. over there and get that. I'll go over Nope. We'll go th- get this together, and then we'll go get this together. Got so it. So he doesn't like to split the party. Understood. Yeah. Right. See? This is bad news for you, Christy, because... <laughs> Because he, he sends her up to the heliport, right? Mm-hmm. Where presumably there's, you know, she's not going to be killed while he wades into the violent masses because he's trying pilot. to make right. sure yeah, he's trying to, re- to retrieve the, the pilot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're right. right. Too bad, Chris. Uh, okay, if we're going to go down that road, <laughs> oh, no. just how many people do they think a Belgette Ranger can t- carry? Right? <laughs> just saying. And, and what is the range? I can tell you the range of a Jet Ranger is not sufficient to outrun anything, <laughs> You're right? And even if you get to LAX, who's going to fly a plane? I the mean, there's a lot. There. We got a, we got our pilot. Yeah, I don't think TWA just leaves the keys on a little iHook. <laughs> no, it's not under the, the Denise, Denise Crosby is at LAX. She's got the plane. Got, they just have okay. to get to LAX. Yeah, but why I mean, Mike's right. They're not going to outrun this. Yeah, no. like it's, if, it, if it's truly coming in 90 minutes, they're not going to get to LAX and then take off and be away for before right. the I mean, I guess drops. that's part of the right. feeling of the movie, right? Is like you have a feeling that you really want them to get away, but you're also kind of like, like, I don't this, know if it's Well, this is the other thing that's another of the many pleasures of this movie is, is its pace <laughs> yeah. and its yeah. editing. It's yeah. be- It's just such a well-cut film mm-hmm. because it never slows for a moment. It's like once you're it takes it. off, mm-hmm. yeah, once he gets that phone call, it's like a roller coaster, yep. this movie. It- Clock thickening. I think the other thing that's interesting about it in, in that vein, I think, is it's out of the movies we've talked about this month, it's the one that takes place in the smallest area oh, yeah. in geography yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. all in the same neighborhood which i feels unusual to me for an la movie it's uh-huh. like one i think neighborhood of yeah. la it's kind of that miracle mile um tar pits area or whatever yeah. it is and it's all and he kind of keeps coming back to the same places which also brings me back to that dream logic thing like he keeps uh-huh. he keeps passing the same people passing yes. the same things and I, to me, that feeds into that. I don't know if they're ever going to get mm. out of this thing because they just can't get out of this neighborhood. They can't get away from these same places. Right. I don't know. That's something I noticed much more this time um, than others. And, and that's different from the other movies. I think. It's mm-hmm. a really good point that you brought that up more. Uh, our segment Clock Talk. Oh, outside <laughs> right. the yes, restaurant is that is similar to but legally distinct from Bob's Big Boy. Right, right. They did have a prominently featured clock. They do. That's mm-hmm. a that's a centerpiece of the movie, right? Yeah. And then the clocks show up in the department store again, right? Oh, they, yeah. They right. That whole so, yeah. long sequence where they're in that little like it's like a clock department. Yeah, they're surrounded by clocks. It, 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 it is a like a twelve foot by twelve foot clock room. Yeah. In this yep. department store, which Brilliant. there's. A single bare light bulb hanging down. You're right, yes. And I think that's because the DP said we don't have enough light. We need more light. <laughs> but yeah. it, that didn't make a the ton of sense to me from a, an architectural standpoint. But wasn't that just a fun little clock room? Oh, yeah. 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 yeah well, and, and that's the place I think where Anthony Edwards finally thinks, have I made a mistake? Mm-hmm. Did I make this all go down? Have mm-hmm. I like kill, essentially killed yeah. a bunch of people? It's really interesting. Right. 
I want to oh. I want to shout out the score of this film. Oh too, gosh, yes. Which it was a it was kind of a mark of coolness in the 80s to have your score done by Tangerine Dream. Yeah. And if if you have young listeners who have no idea who Tangerine Dream were, they were like the epitome of cool electronic music in if the 1980s. If you like synthwave today, you'll like, love Tangerine Dream. There were like Dream. two names, yeah. Kraftwerk and <laughs> Tangerine Dream, yeah. who were a German trio of composers who just wrote this incredibly beautiful, moody, dreamy music. And they released entire albums, essentially, of instrumental music. But they also did a number of scores. And they yep. always managed to do scores for really cool movies, like Michael Mann movies and, and films like this, like really interesting, idiosyncratic cult films. Aren't they risky business? Yes, they yeah, wrote the score yeah. for Risky Business, which cool is a beautiful score. score. Yeah. They did yeah. Michael Mann's Thief. Yeah, they did a lot of movies. Um, I think they did... Uh, Are they Legend or is that somebody else? Yeah, I think, it, I think yeah. they did Legend. Yep. Yeah. They're, and it's um, it's a big part of what makes this movie feel like a dream. Yeah. Is that like floating, gauzy, electronic music that mm-hmm. floats all the way through it. The colors in the movie with Tangerine Dream, it just like makes so much sense. The light and the colors that you see at the at the beginning through the whole movie mm-hmm. all syncs up together yeah. for me. It's a neo-noir. It, yeah. It's, it's yeah. part of what makes it fit in this yuppie nightmare cycle, right? Is that combination of genres. And it's a noir is a huge part of this. Yes. When they, um, when they released the special edition Blu-ray a few years ago, it was around about the same time that the, film critic Walter Chaw released his book. He wrote a book about Miracle Mile and they had all of this artwork commissioned for those projects. And it's just this beautiful kind of like art deco art Mm -hmm. portraying scenes from the movie. And it just works so perfectly with the the tone of the film. Yeah. This is sort of off topic, but it was just occurring to me. This might be Mayor Winningham is not a manic pixie dream girl. Not really right? at all. I mean, all the, yeah, the, we, the movies we've been talking about this month, she's right. like yeah. maybe the only leading woman who's not right. really a femme fatale. Or, right. She yeah. doesn't even know what's going no, on for that's so a good chunk of yeah. the movie because he's protecting her right. from the yeah. knowledge of what's about to happen. One thing that I loved is kind of the tragic poetry of them having their kind of first date at the yeah, tar pits, yes. and then they basically die together yes. in the tar pits. Very poetic. I, just, yeah. I liked that bookend. Yeah. Well, you know, I actually way. have been to those tar pits, <laughs> and um, uh, the museum that's nearby is very cool, but the actual tar pit itself is exactly what it's described as. It is a yeah. pit of black tar with some... Uh, fiberglass mammoth that they put in there for contact. Right. But other than that, it's just a big pit of crude oil in the middle of a city. Yeah. Is the burbling, uh, is that a, a true geothermal um, effect? Yeah, there's some, yeah, they... some sort of gas, like methane mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. Well, it's great because he the way he uses it is to comment on, you know, hi- the history of the world beyond the human race's mm-hmm. imprint on it, right? Like he's, because mm-hmm. he's saying this is, this was here long before we were here. It's going to be here long after the human race is gone. And then at the end of the movie, when they're in the helicopter and they're going down, he's telling her, you and I are going to be they're going to a part of history. Yeah, yeah, they're going to find us someday. They're yeah. going to we're, they're going to put us in a museum, right. like the one where we right. met. I mean, it's yeah. heartbreaking it's to a beautiful, me, but like, it's a beautiful, but it's very poetic and lovely. Yeah, it's a beautiful scene. And, 
Yeah, it's great that that Miracle Mile area is is quite lovely and and kind of interesting, and it's just old old LA, which is you know it had that feel to me, and I've never been there. Yeah, but. so much of LA is feels like suburban sprawl, like mm-hmm. the parts of the city. Even there's not a lot of there's not a lot of LA that kind of has a real sense of history in a in a way that feels vintage and interesting and mm-hmm. and. Miracle Mile is part of it. I, mean, I it worked even... across the street from the tar pits for oh, two years. Oh, wow. Yeah, I worked in a building right across the street. And so I knew all these locations. And it is funny, like Lisa was saying, how he never gets anywhere. But yeah. that's part of the that's part of the absurdist comedy elements, which is something we sure. haven't really talked about, which is that this movie is also pretty funny. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of comedy in this movie, um, dark comedy, but it's there. And one of the things I always thought was funny is that He's he's always in motion and he's always trying to progress in getting away and he never leaves yeah. like a six block area yeah. in the whole film. Right. Right. It very much had that feeling like, you know, going uh, up a, a down escalator mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. Like you're I just, think that actually or happens on a treadmill. At one point, like you're just it? not getting yeah, anywhere. Yeah, there's a part in the, where in the, the people are in escalators, yeah. Where he's yeah. like trying to he's going he's, up. The yeah, he's climbing. Escalator. It's yeah. the yeah, it's the McKelty Williamson yeah, 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 character's yeah, yeah. carrying yeah. his, his sister, sister and he's carrying her up the escalator and, too. But yeah. then yeah. the car on a sweeping over like overpass it turns around and goes the wrong way. Yep. Right. So there's even that going on as well. Okay, Steve's yeah. a genius. I've just after, it's as kind we of a genius this, movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's it's a it's a perfect film. It's like a I film agree. that you would yeah. change for me that I would change nothing about. And for such yeah. a small budget, like it's so incredible mm-hmm. how good it is. <laughs> not that budget really matters, honestly, when it comes to being good or not. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Mike, was there any head trauma in this film? <laughs> there, there, um, the two bits that I made, that I made note of, and, and this could qualify under comedy as well, one is uh, Harry walks headfirst into the door at the fake Bob's Big mm-hmm. Boy, mm-hmm. which I would oh, yeah. not have believed, but I worked with someone who actually did that. Oh. So <laughs> human beings Realistic. do that. Okay. Uh, and then the other is there's a great scene where a cyclist rides into an open car door. A uh, yes. very classic gag. Ooh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And doesn't Anthony Edwards, this all this was such a striking thing to me, don't they throw him out of the back of that truck they're getting yes. away in the, from the diner and he like ends up on the on ramp or off ramp of the freeway and that right. always is so striking to me because I feel like if that happened in LA to you, whoa. Like I don't well, know. That's well and then he sees the, the two the, the two headlights yeah. that turn yeah. out to be motorcycles. It's so and so they split yeah. around yeah. him. I oh, love yes. that. So but, brilliant. Such a good yeah. scene. Yeah. I assume there may be, well, he didn't really fall on his head, so maybe that's not really head trauma. We're, yeah, but. we're again, it can be implied. Mm, um, okay. We don't always see it on screen. Right, right. And did those two get to have a kiss? Smoochie, smoochie, smoochie. Uh, I actually have a couple listed. Uh, they kiss outside the Bob's Big Boy at 1043, oh. and then at 1.10.58, uh, before he leaves her yet again, and then <laughs> at 1.17.25, they kiss and perhaps a little boom chick wow wow in the elevator before the Oh, end. right. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. What about at, in the tar pits at the end? Do they kiss then? Oh, um, I don't think so. In the, uh, I have this image in my head of them, but maybe that's me making it up because I yeah. want it to happen. I don't yeah. think, so. <laughs> I think that's probably it. Yeah. In a driving review, there was quite a bit of driving. Yeah, I didn't make a whole lot of notes. One thing I said was that 1960 Buick Electra 
really matches his Glenn Miller impersonator so vibe. Glenn Miller, yeah. Um, that was pretty good. Is that the car that Michael T. Williams dropped, that picks him up in with the all the stolen yes. and oh, uh, yeah. I believe so. stereos in the back? Yeah. Oh, was that the Electra or not? No, I think the Electra was was uh, his character's ride in the beginning of the film. I could be wrong. Okay. Super fans, check me on that yeah. one. Um, and then I did say, even at a little before five in the morning, I do think there would be traffic on the highways in L.A., mm-hmm. not on the streets. I totally would buy that. But I thought, just because I have been up that early mm-hmm. and there are bakers going to work and stuff, so I think there might be a little bit more traffic. But it worked great on that on-ramp scene. I definitely mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. So scary. All right. So we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. Okay. Uh, the I have the budget down 3.7 to 4 million, somewhere in there. And it made 1.1 domestically. So I don't know if there wasn't, like, I don't know if they, were they not tracking worldwide numbers in the 80s? or I don't know, that- but I can tell you it was a, that it found its audience on video and cable, and I'm sure it made a fortune on home video. Okay. And it continues to be one of the most, it seems, I mean, Steve's a good part of this because Steve's a great champion for keeping the film alive. He does like a lot of film festivals and stuff like that. And they're, they keep releasing new Blu-rays and new, like there's a new 4K of it coming out later in the year. And every time it gets a new release, like Steve does, makes new stuff Mm -hmm. for it. So yeah, it's really cool. No, I, I always look on YouTube um, for interviews with the filmmakers because I want I like to hear the backstory of, you know, their process and everything. And there was a lot for for him. I couldn't find anything on David Mamet, but Steve's out there. And so I think it's great that he's championing his film. Mm-hmm. IMDb score is seven out of 10. And critics love this film at 91 percent, while audiences are a little bit less at 73 percent, but still fresh. On Rotten Tomatoes, it's about an hour and a half, 127. It's rated R, and it's an action drama romance. It's uh, Hemdale and Miracle Mile Productions. I assume that might be, is that Steve's company, or is that a coincidence that it's... Miracle Mile Productions? I'm sure it's just an LLC. You know, they create these companies to to protect the financiers legally from you know, anything that might be omitted, like music omissions or, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that. Okay. In 2016, it won the best DVD Blu-ray classic film release. Oh, there you go. Award at the Academy of Science, Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. It's a great, I I have it. I'll fully uh, endorse, you know, you should own own this movie. Yeah. And it's a great, especially if you're like a film student. Because Steve puts a lot of stuff on his Blu-rays that oh. um, it's kind of like you can have a little film lesson with Steve, who is also a, a teacher. He like teaches oh, at yeah. various colleges. I could see that from the interviews I saw. Yeah. Um, he also, or it also won for Best Special Effects Digiscantalonian International Film Festival, and it was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. I want to thank you both so much. This has oh, been yeah. such a fun month. Yes, wonderful. We Seriously. have loved having you on. These are great movies. These are not movies we we probably would have picked, but I'm nope. so grateful, and I am going to go back and rewatch them. Um, join us next week when we're going to be talking about Jurassic Park. This is probably like your last opportunity to guess what the theme of the month is. Do you guys want to do? You want to point them to your your website or anything coming up, or do you guys want to promote anything? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, all of my work is uh, at my website, which is just my name, DustinMorrow.com, and you can find um, what I'm up to there, short films, feature films, screenwriting, film scholarship, podcasting, etc. Yeah, cool. Yeah. I'll, I'll have that all that in the show notes. Cool. Lisa, do you want to point I mean, out everything? everything movie I've done has been with Dustin, so just go look at his stuff and keep listening to the Dodge movie podcast. Oh, thank you. Because it's great. All right, everybody, and never forget. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. 